Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to the literary agent, Carolina Sutton. We spoke to Carolina about moving from advertising to agenting, about representing high-profile clients, including Margaret Atwood, and about what she looks for in a book proposal. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Carolina, to Always Take Notes. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Could we start at the beginning? What was your entry into agenting like? Yes, a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. My entry point into agenting was a an accident, really. It was an escape. I studied English at university, which is where most of us start. But I had no idea that was something you could actually realistically take into professional life. I loved books. I spent most of my childhood in libraries. I would uh, borrow books. I came, you know, I, 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 I didn't have any money when I was growing up. Uh, I didn't come from a rich family. And I would go to bookshops, make friends with booksellers and ask them to lend me books because I couldn't afford them. So I spent most of my childhood reading, but it would never, it never occurred to me that one could, it it was out of my reach or even not a possibility. It wasn't on the horizon that one could be involved in the process of putting a book together. And I had fantasies like most readers that I might be a writer, but uh, in order to be a writer, you actually have to be able to write. And I cannot write. I, I actually cannot write. I cannot write great sentences. I cannot write stories. I can read them and appreciate them. After finishing university, I thought that, and that was what the career service advised, was that advertising was the way forward. And a number of people who studied what I studied uh, were tempted by advertising. It's a fantastic career for other people. It wasn't for me. I was always an overachiever. I was an always an A plus student. Uh, I loved studying. I was curious. And for me to start my professional life in one of the greatest failures was quite a disparaging experience. I went into advertising hoping to be very good because I was always good at everything I touched and uh, in the academic sphere. And I realized that I was no good at it. And it was quite a revelation, but I didn't know what to do with that feeling. You know, for me, uh, I thought advertising was a place where creativity met business. And I always had an inkling that I could do both. But if you have that, if you know that you're good at culture, appreciating culture, reading uh, words, but not necessar- necessarily writing them, but you're also good at selling and pitching and quite like that meeting point of business point of business and creativity. Advertising seems obvious, but I stepped in and 
And it just, I just withered uh, on the vine and it was not a happy experience for me. And I thought adult life is no fun. I like reading. So uh, I was desperate to leave. And I think one of the reasons was that I realized that that is a profession that where you, your creativity is, you know, it's, it's a creativity to brief. You get a brief. You don't get to choose what you are working on. And that became a problem for me because I realized that I cared about what I was selling. And I was good at selling and I was good at reading and I was good at appreciation of culture and interacting with culture in many ways. But I wasn't good at selling what I didn't believe in. And I just left. I was desperate. I left. I was desperate for a job anywhere. It didn't matter where. And it turned out that a friend of mine knew of someone who needed an assistant at a literary agency. I'd never heard of such a thing as a literary agency. I I had no idea what a literary agent was. But I applied and got the job. And I was happy to make coffee. I was happy to open post. I was happy to do anything that was not my previous job. And I stepped through through the door with no expectations and no dreams, really, other than I knew I was unhappy as an adult and I wanted to revert back to my childhood of reading books. And I never looked back. It was the best thing that had ever happened to me. I became an assistant to two agents, uh, one of whom was selling book to film rights and the other was selling books to publishers. And it was fun. Uh, it was hard work. It was at the time. It was, it was just at the beginning of email. I mean, we had email, but um, um, but it was not um dominating our lives yet it was just a method of correspondence and and you know it it just seems like such a bygone era we used to uh send out books Uh, we used to print five copies of a manuscript um and then send those five copies to five editors and those editors would read the manuscript and then return the manuscript if they didn't want to buy it and when you re- when 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 they returned the actual pages, they were a little bit dogged with some coffee stains, and you know we would then resend them because that was the dial- so then the, the the second tier of editors would know that they weren't our chosen editors, the five editors they they were the second tier. It was like a different era. It was really fun, um, and I just thought I, I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe my luck. It was and I was a, a kind of you know, dog's body. I did everything. I did make coffee. I did book appointments. It was, it was mundane. It was, you know, I worked overtime. I would come in at weekends to read what we called unsolicited submissions. People would send in sample chapters. Again, they were physical copies that uh, not many people had printers that would print multiple copies of manuscripts. They would, uh, you know, that sometimes they would just have them printed. So again, everyone was very careful. It was not indiscriminate. People who were writing were very careful because it was expensive. You would have to print out, again, 10 copies of sample chapters and send them to chosen agents. It was a very, very different world. I just found, I, 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 I found that I was good at what I had suspected I was good at at that meeting point of business and creativity but 
it wasn't a job I even knew I, I knew existed so that was fortuitous I mean it was luck it really was pure luck but in some ways luck is you, you sometimes you know you have to know when to leave and you have to be true to yourself and if you know that you are stuck in a position that is not quite right for you how did you go from from making that initial move to be to being an assistant how did you progress from that in terms of beginning to to agent your own books and, and building up your own list it was a I and mean, just once i discovered it i made myself open to opportunity i i would do anything I, I was so happy to i mean my first position in agenting was to sell book to film rights after a range of personal uh, personnel changes the person who i was working for who was selling book to film rights um, left for Los Angeles and I was asked whether I wanted to take up that role. That wasn't my dream role, but I thought, you know, to stay in this industry, to call myself an agent, I'll take it and I will make it up as I go along. And I, I did and I, it wasn't my dream, but I knew that once you are an agent, then you are an agent and you can sell books. Um, and it was saying yes to opportunity. It was turning up. It was being available. It was working over time. It was following my curiosity. Um, and then I knew, I, by then I knew my passion really was selling books. But that experience of, and I was actually quite good at selling book to films, to film rights. It's a really, really, adaptation is a fascinating area of, agenting and publishing because it requires this really it's a business of matchmaking and imagination when you take a work of art or entertainment in a particular medium and you imagine its translation into a completely different medium and you can approach it from limitless angles you can think of a producer who will respond to it you can think of an actor of a writer, or perhaps not limitless, but you know, there are a number of angles you can think about. You could, I mean, the, the way that adaptations happen is so interesting because sometimes it's a straightforward submission process. Sometimes it is a conversation you have at a dinner party. Sometimes it is reading a, a an article you know you, you you're working on a book and you think how would this film adaptation happen and nothing nothing happens because it's unusual and years later you read an article in a magazine and it's an actor who expresses an interest in a particular thing it's like oh the, they are this is the right person you know so that was really fun, but it wasn't for me. I really wanted to work with words and I wanted to read and I wanted to shape books. But once you, I mean, and this is what I often say to young people, it, it, it don't get fixated on getting the perfect job. Like make sure that you're on the right track and that you are learning about the industry. And uh, as long as you're not miserable do, doing what you're doing, be open to other opportunities. No one get. I mean, very few people get their ideal job, you know, at first go. Like I did a few years doing that. I could have continued uh, selling book to film rights. It's also a very frustrating uh, part of the business because, you know, for every project that you place that gets stuck in development, very few of them, you know, there are, there are, for every project that gets made into a film, there are hundreds that never do. 
And I am a little bit impatient and I have shortish attention span. And for me, that was a frustration. I wanted to know that if something was good, that you would see the end result and that end result would be a piece of art, a book or a film. And the film on the film industry, you know, not everything happens in the film industry. You can have every component and you know, can have the perfect actor, director, film script, and still sometimes funding falls through, or there are many moving parts, and the mo- I found the moving parts a little bit frustrating. How did you then make the move to being just a purely a books agent? Was it a case of taking on clients alongside that and then making the move across, or...? Yes, I did, because once I was an agent, then there was no one who could stop me. You, you want your... It's a very free... You know, there's a lot of freedom as an agent. And of course, as we know, with freedom comes responsibility. You know, there are, you can do pretty much whatever you want as an agent. You know, you you need to shape careers. You can spend all day reading if that is the best uh, use of your time for your client. Uh, You can spend time traveling. You can, you just, you need to do what's best for your, for the authors and you need to, place their books, you know, you can spend all day reading, uh, answering email or reading. You are very much in charge of your own time. But time is the most precious thing. So I just, once you are an agent, you decide what you do. And I chose that I wanted to sell books as well as think about adaptations and as well as placing film rights. Once I started doing it, there was no stopping me. That was just it. That was like, this is what I... And then it was a, it was actually um, just a set of corporate changes in my life. There were agencies. I was a particular agency, an American agency, that closed its London office and uh, merged with a fantastic UK agency. I used to work at an agency called Curtis Brown. And they had a, a much better personnel who sell, sold book to film rights. People with real, you know, who for whom that was a focus and my role became redundant and I was just I was delighted about it because then I could focus on what my real passion was and then just I was off I mean you really it was it was terrific but time is the thing you know one of the things that you have in this job is your your taste your time and your reputation and you have to be very careful about how you use them because you could squander all of them, you know, I, I want to be, when I, when I send a book out and I am in, in, you know, in this very lucky position that, or I hope I am, where I send a novel out or a, a nonfiction proposal to publishers, they read it really fast, but that is something you have to earn, you know, that won't last if you, if you start sending substandard material or books that aren't what you, what you pitch them to be you can lose that reputation very, very quickly. And could you could you tell us a bit for... A lot of our listeners are aspirant writers or people at fairly early stage of their careers. So people who either uh, do not have an agent or are looking at getting representation and, and things like that. And I thought it was it was interesting reading some of your, your commentary elsewhere on, on some of the advice you've given for people looking to get agents, particularly, for example, warning against attempts at humour in query letters and stuff like that. Could you could you tell us what... what in your view, is is best practice if you're at the start of your career and you're you're hoping to get representation. The best practice is be serious about what you do. But I don't don't. What I mean about humor is, 
you don't have to be self-deprecating and you're not there to make anyone laugh. You're, you're, you know, if your manuscript is funny, if your book is funny, let them be funny. You know, they, they, but, but actually this is quite a serious business and we have a lot of fun. I mean, fun is part of the process, but it's, it's, you know, it's a serious proposal. As I said, time is our most precious commodity. And if, you waste your time with your pitch and it doesn't quite reflect you and you, that your seriousness as an artist, as a writer, you can just squander that attention. You have our attention for a very short period of time, not because agents are important. They really aren't in the scheme of things uh, and not because we are too busy or because we're gatekeepers. Like no agent wants to be a gatekeeper. In fact, my aim in life to be the, is to be the opposite, to, to, to create access and to facilitate. But there are the limitations of time and the hours in the day. And if I am to be a good agent for my authors and I am to be there for them, uh, for editorial comments, for conversations about uh, cover design, for negotiations, for you know royalty negotiations... I have limited time to read pitch letters and, and, and just understanding that. So understand what you're doing, understanding the format. You have a few seconds to grab the agent's attention. If you think of how, how many, you know, thousands of approaches we get. And actually, I do, I do think with nostalgia. Uh, I think back to those days when people had, had to submit manuscripts by physical manuscripts because people were more discriminate. It was a, it really, you know, writers had to be serious about what they were doing. Whereas now anyone can send you anything and it's just at the, you know, they hit a button and send to 30 people. Again, I always feel like be discriminate, show your judgment, be serious about your work and have self-respect. If you are think if you think about, being a writer, choose the top five agents you want to be represented by. Don't send indiscriminate, you know, round robins to people because that's, I think that shows lack of self-respect. Do you, would you really want to be represented by anyone? Does it not matter at all? So do your research, choose the people, be brief, know that you have your moment, doesn't, you know, that, that, that it's a few seconds where we look at what's come in and if something stands out, we'll jump on it like uh, every day I look at submissions and I think I really want to find something great that's what we all you know aim for that's what we want Uh, but you know and then you have learn a good way to present your idea and and I think that is about editing it's about distilling it's like distill and distill and be able to talk about your work what you know, what is your work? I mean, often one of the mistakes that draft, uh, writers make is that they can't describe their work and so they become wordy and be, and it all becomes too abstract. I mean, the art of writing a pitch letter or the art of writing, um, of being able to describe your work in a paragraph, then a line or three lines and then a line, it's really... Uh, useful process because if you can't describe your book succinctly then are you sure you have a book I sometimes think if if people have to spend a lot of time telling you what the book is 
there is usually a problem with the plot or structure or focus because actually they don't know what they've written. And you have a particularly illustrious list. I wonder if you could um, pick an example and tell us a little bit about how you found that particular client and came to represent them. Is it a specific client or any client you'd like me to talk about? Uh, well, your choice, really. But <laughs> I mean, I, I assume listeners would be interested in like Margaret Atwood or someone like that. Well, Margaret Atwood was a really interesting one because I came, obviously, because of the, our age difference later in on the scene later in her life. And it was, I was working alongside another agent who had been uh, called Vivian Schuster. It was one of the best agents and who was a mentor. And I learned so much from her, a wonderful person who represented Margaret. There were two agents, one of them called Phoebe Larmore, who had represented Margaret for many, many, many years. And another agent called Vivian Schuster. Uh, and they were a duo in the English language uh, representing Margaret's interests around the world. And as they chose to retire or, or, or approach the retirement age, I volunteered to take over. And um, and it was really one of the, most, the scariest experience, scariest professional experiences of my life when I was flown to Toronto and I was introduced to the Queen and um, and she would approve me or not you know it was that it was that moment where we had and and actually margaret is fantastic at building suspense and jeopardy and she understands plot she really lived up to my understanding of who she was but she also made me work hard in that uh we had a meeting and she asked for my date of birth and place of birth and she ran a horoscope and I was led to believe that that horoscope would then determine whether I was suitable for the job or not and I went back to my hotel in Toronto and I didn't sleep much because I thought well what I don't even know what like what is my horoscope and then I thought like who do I share it with and I found a few people I shared it with they said I just don't know whether those people whether those people actually say much about me does it say I'm great at contracts that I am a really brilliant negotiator it's like what does it say so I waited the next day and I didn't really hear much and afterwards I um I emailed Margaret and I was so nervous and I said well I don't know what my date of birth says about me, but Margaret, in the, she's very mischievous. She is wonderful and the greatest intellect, but she's also very mischievous. Said so to me, oh, none of that matters. That was just a party trick. <laughs> and, uh, can, can I ask, with, a, with an extremely you know, well-established and, and kind of world-famous role like that, author like that, what is the, the role of the agent specifically? I mean, are you providing editorial suggestions or is it specifically about contracts and... Uh, well, hardly. You don't provide editorial. It's about, it's about, well, you see, this is what's interesting about publishing. You know, there are the debut authors I've worked with uh, where you just get the words on the page. So say you have someone like Imogen Hermes Gower, whose work I read and I thought, this person can write. Or Emma Healy, who wrote Elizabeth is Missing, where you read it and you think, this is quite extraordinary. This young person telling the story from the point of view of a of an eight-year-old with dementia. And it, it's just so interesting. And it's the voice, the words on the page. With Margaret Atwood, you, you, take, it, you take the body of work. Uh, you are not there to assess quality or to edit. You are there to make sure that the work 
reaches readership around the world, that it is managed, that it's sold and positioned and marketed and that it finds the biggest audience. That's your job. And that is really what, you know, you know, there are not many people who can do what I do in that it's not about reading. It's about reading and business. It's about positioning. It's about, and you have to, every day, you have to, you have to switch between various skills. Like, so one minute... I will be reading a submission that's come in and I will be paying attention to the words and sentences and suspense and structure. And 15 minutes later, I will be having a conversation about outdoor advertising for a book or how to position a particular book. Or I will have to call someone and say, I'm afraid you will need to pulp 50,000 copies because something disastrous has happened. And a lot of it is about sitting down with an author and planning you know what do you want to achieve for them where are they what you know for me I, I mean I, I worked with Margaret on a couple of books and then I what I you know I, I experienced and, and I, I feel I feel honored to have to, to be working with her I mean it's an honor and it's a responsibility you know it's like you're working with with one of the greatest writers in the world and not you know just in 2023 but of the 20th century but also of all time and that that means something and I I I take that responsibility very seriously and I had the privilege of uh, working on the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale I wasn't there for The Handmaid's Tale I was alive but I wasn't an agent but you know when Margaret told me what the book was you know we we planned the entire campaign and that ranged from you know the the how to work with the series. I mean, we didn't. It was a very different book from the actual TV series, but how to keep it secret because there were so many hacking attempts, how to launch it, how to make sure that it was, you know, it's a very different book in terms of sensibility and approach and what it does and and how to roll it out at the same time in all the territories around the world. So how to orchestrate and and, and I, I don't work alone I work with an incredible team of people you know many many translation agents and assistants and you know business affairs and accounts people but like how as a team how to work with a team to make sure that the book was distributed and came out in every territory at the same time it didn't and it wouldn't leak so you know there are these logistical sometimes your job so one day your job is about taste and sensibility and creativity and your appreciation of the word on the page and reading is everything in this job and culture is everything and following your curiosity but another day your job is logistics and you have to be able to do both and you have to be able to plan step by step a logistical operation obviously not you don't do it yourself because publishers do it but to make sure that you can anticipate how do we ensure that a book is pub that needs to be translated into 30 languages at the same time comes out at the same time in every territory it doesn't leak and it's it's an incredible you know and then you have to you just have to be everything so you know you can be if you love reading and editing you can be a certain kind of agent but in order to uh oversee uh careers of 
certain authors, you need to be much more than a reader and certainly much more than an editor and much more than a negotiator or much more than just being good at contracts. You need to be able to run things and, you know, and sometimes you just, you just have to be very, very tough and you have to be very tough with people you're very fond of and understanding the boundary be, be, between what's professional and what's a friendship. I, I found the perfect career for me. Not everyone enjoys it. You have to be able to talk about money openly and, you know, without feeling embarrassed about it. Um, whilst also being sensitive and making sure the word and the books and the author's legacy and and the audience and the quality are what's always leading the way. So you, you have to be led by quality and by words. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the literary agent, Carolina Sutton. It's time for the next instalment of our segment where we share bonus material from previous guests of the show. So this week, we're going to hear from the journalist, author and filmmaker, Sebastian Younger. And he's going to tell you about the most important traits a writer should have. Whatever you're calling in the literary world, whether you're a novelist or a screenwriter, or a journalist, I think you need two traits. They have to be primary. They have to be core to your character as a writer. Um, first of all, you have to really, really love language. Um, you cannot be lazy. You have to write the most artful, beautiful, elegant, lean, efficient, um, direct prose you possibly can. And again, the, the, you know, language is an extraordinary tool. And when you use it in the service of the truth, it becomes a kind of sacred tr tool. And if you use it in a sloppy way, you're disrespecting it and you're disrespecting your readers. And eventually no one's going to want to read you. And, and you, that, that love of language has to be foremost in your experience of being a writer. And the other thing has to be a love of the truth. And whether you're a journalist or a novelist, I mean, there's, there's novelistic truths as well, human truths that you have to get to. That's the point of all this, is to give people access to the truth. And if that's the, not the point of writing, then you really shouldn't be a writer. There's lots of other great professions. Most of them pay a lot more than writing does. So, um, but those to me would be the two essential traits that any writer needs to have. That was Sebastian Younger. And if you were interested in what Sebastian had to say, you can listen to our full interview with him via our website, which is www.alwaystakenotes.com. But for now, back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Carolina Sutton. Could we just come back to the, the submissions process specifically? Just and, and again, a really kind of pragmatic question because a lot of our readers are interested in this. In terms of, I know that the term slush pile is kind of frowned on sometimes in, in agenting land, but both in, in your experience and more generally, how much uh, stuff actually gets, gets picked up from unsolicited manuscripts? I think not many purely because it's an individual versus uh, many submissions. But... Um, so many of the books I've read come from just an approach. And, and the slush pile is, I don't, you know, it's someone saying, here I am, you know, writing a book. Would you be interested to read it? You know, that's really all it, all it is. Uh, and it's not, um, and obviously I can't be everything 
you know, and I will miss things. We all make mistakes. You know, I will read something, I'll be tired and my response won't be the right response or I won't have the time to read something because it came when I was busy doing other things. But we're always keen to hear and be, and we're interested. And uh, how many? Not many. Not many. I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's a few a year for me. And I think that's really... That's really it, but that's the but that's sort of pure practicality of it. You can only sell a number of books. You can only look after a number of books every year, and sometimes your list is full. Uh, so it's it's cyclical. How many how many clients do you have at the minute? It's not something that I've ever counted, so because it's not you know this is not really how it works. It's just the work that is happening. You have lifetime relationships with people. You know you you sort of start a relationship with someone and then. Sometimes writers take 10 years to write a book. So this, you don't do much, you know. In, so then are they an active client or what, you know. So I just, it's just you don't want to overstretch. You don't want to stretch yourself too thinly. But it's not, I wouldn't ever want to count. That, that's not, Well, I don't know. Actually, this is the simplest answer is I don't know. But I'm led by curiosity. You know, what's the guiding principle for me is, uh, it, and really, this is the only much more than a commercial uh, aspect of it is. And I've realized I'm realizing it more and more and more. The only thing that matters to what I do is um, follow great writing, original ideas, great storytelling and interesting people. Just on that, that point about the, the kind of division of your time, I see the point about it being difficult to put a, a, an absolute number on the number of clients, but is it possible to say what fraction of your time is occupied by what number? Is it like 70% is occupied by your sort of central 15 authors or how does it, you know, how does that piece work? No, it, it, do you know what? It's like you're trying to put parameters on the job that is just organic and every day it's different. This is that, you know, it, it's sort of trying to systematize something that is not that won't lend itself to being systematized it's just not how it works it's every day is different you wake up and it's different and then it depends what I mean I truly I, I, I would be lying if I tried I mean it would be a very artificial exercise and it wouldn't help a writer it's the day-to-day -day job I can sometimes spend all day reading. The things about it is like you also have to have, have the time to think, you know, to go to the theatre, to go to... Sometimes I spend time on other things, you know, because you need to know the culture around you. So it's it's just you. everyone has their own method. But for my method isn't about a systematic approach that it's about... It's very organic. It's about ideas interesting people, storytelling and great writing. And then time somehow, you know, I build a life and a career around it. And I think it probably would be other people, may, maybe other agents are quite um, methodical about knowing the number and planning around that. But for me, it's been more, it's been more spontaneous, but also it needs to be boundaried so you don't let people down by being unavailable. You mentioned that you were always interested in the intersection of, of culture and business, but I was wondering what how you sort of honed your tactics when it came to negotiating with publishers, or was that something that always came pretty naturally to you? You know, I, if you met me in real life, I am petite, I'm really small, and I look very unassuming. And then when I walk into a room, 
uh, you know, for years and years in my uh, life, people assumed I was a child when I was an adult <laughs> and um, I don't look imposing or impressive. Um, and, um, and I think that kind of conditioning, you, you just can't get rid of it because in order to be, you know, I always felt, I never felt small and I have quite a, well, what I think quite, a, you know, quite a strong presence, but um, in order to, get noticed I would have to be very forceful and um, I think a lot of my negotiation was that kind of unintended you know unintentional conditioning where I I look very unassuming and unimpressive and then I have to make my presence known and that's been my negotiation. Like people don't see it coming when I negotiate. And it's been really fun. But I think it's natural. It's like a psychological flaw that's really helped me throughout in my life. Because uh, most of my clients laugh about it. It's just like, oh, you think you're dealing with someone who's really nice. Well, you wait till you see, <laughs> till you see the, the negotiating side. And so I don't know where that came from. It's not something I learned... I mean, you learn it. It's like an apprenticeship. You learn it with, you become better and better and better and better at it. And I think at the beginning, you try very hard and then it becomes second nature. But I would say for me, it was instinctive. I just wanted to ask, when we were emailing before the the conversation, you mentioned your experience growing up as a working class child in Poland. And I was wondering, what's your perspective on the role of social class within British publishing? And, you know, your perspective on that as someone who has a bit of a bit of kind of outside perspective on that and is it a problem and is it changing i think it is changing and the industry is ready for the change um being an outsider and being foreign it's a little bit different from being easily identifiable as a particular social class or race or you know and and you're foreign that is in itself you're othered in a way i actually found it very helpful in my work because most of the writing I do, I represent other voices, you know, I represent perspectives that are the other and I enjoy doing it. And I quite like swimming against the current. I find it enjoyable. Uh, so arriving and being working class Polish girl who learned English from a Russian teacher and who really learned from reading English books as a kid and half autodidact and half taught and who arrived in the UK to study English and just made it up. I mean, it's a sort of a bit of a, you know, I made it up. It's been helpful to me because you, you can, I am the other, I can see it and I'm not of a particular class or a particular, I mean, I am of a particular class, but it's not recognizable. So I can approach anyone. I have this confidence, you know, you can only categorize me as being a uh, foreign and small and a woman and you know many other things but it never held me back but yeah the industry was when I joined it was still uh very much the preserve of the middle class or upper middle class and I wasn't aware of that because I just wasn't I wanted to work with books it wasn't even on my mind I mean I only came to realize that afterwards that's not to say that my example you know I am an anecdote I'm not a you know statistically I'm an irrelevance it just so happened. It's quite funny. I've had quite a few 
uh, encounters with people who assumed that I was posh because my name was spelled with a K and they thought that was my parents' affectation. Uh, and in fact, there was once a review of one of my clients' work in a magazine that shall remain nameless that used my name in acknowledgements as evidence of that writer's posh background. Uh, and I thought, gosh, if only you knew. But uh, it's a very common name. Um, in many parts of the world, and it's not an affectation. But it's been, it's fun. I mean, look, being the other, it's a, it's not a bad, it's not a bad place to be as long as you're not, you don't encounter structural barriers, which of course people do and did. But as a, as a reader and as someone, for me, it's been a very good place of being able to see things other people. And, you know, I, I, over the years, I'd, I'd represented many many books from the point of view of the other, you know, from my, the very first book I ever sold was a social justice book called Stuffed or Starved. I've represented writers like, um, you know, Malala Yousafzai or, or Grayson Perry or, you know, like writers representing in kind of outside perspective at a time when it wasn't mainstream or doing something unusual. And I think, you know, someone like Margaret Atwood, uh, you know, telling, you know, like she's for years, she's been telling, telling stories or writing poetry, her poetry, if you don't know it, she's an incredible poet who's been writing from the perspective or, 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 or channeling voices of the others. So if you are attuned to that, it's good. If you can't say it, you know, you'll end up being a different kind of agent. But a number of books I've represented over the years have been from that other perspective. Perspective. And and it's been, you know, I've seen, I've often taken unusual works on or a kind of unusual points of view and have taken them to huge audiences, which is something I really, really enjoy doing. I mean, the latest book I've worked on, and that goes for fiction, but also nonfiction, the, the latest book I've worked on, you know, has been Katie Hassel's The Story of Art Without Men, which again, you know, it just takes that what shouldn't be marginal but is marginal and it's places at the center so that's been that's been really fun you mentioned earlier as well that british publishing has an aversion to talking about money um we do not on this podcast it is a rule that we ask everyone about money so uh, go into as much detail or as little as you like but how has it worked for you throughout your career and how is the literary agent's income divided in general between salary and commission? It depends. I mean, there are. It depends on what kind of business you run, or what business you join, or it. If these are private businesses, there is no rule. If you're a sole trader, you your commission will be your salary, and your overheads will be your overheads. There are agencies that where it's I, I truly couldn't give you and because I've worked in a number of environments. Uh, but you know, you need to obviously the commission is linked to the income you generate. Yes. So there really is no rule. It just it differs. And you know, there are people who run businesses, own own businesses who are employees who are um so yes, it's it is a private business. And then within that it's not a because it's it's an entrepreneurial role. It, it yeah, there are no rules. Each business decides. Can I ask just um, kind of again in this real vein of, of real practicality based questions again for for people who may be at the beginning of their career and are having early interactions with a literary agent? Something we often hear, even from very established writers, talking about their their first steps is that they may feel they've they've in theory had an agent, but it's not really worked. They haven't had any. They didn't. You know, there's a lot of being not getting responses a lot of not um 
you know, stuff not really happening. How, in your view, when you're at the beginning of the career, your career, should you walk that line between accepting that you're, you're not necessarily going to be the center of an agent's attention, but making sure that you are, you know, getting service? And, and when, when is it time to walk away, in, in your view, if it's, if, if it's what is an indication that that relationship is really not working, maybe both from the agent's side and the, the writer's side? I think honesty and communication are really important. I think it sort of goes back to having that first conversation and setting and agreeing goals and making sure that you understand what you're both trying to achieve. Uh, and I think that conversation is one of the most important ones uh, to your relationship and its longevity because uh, the first thing that I do when I, for example, when I read a novel and I like it, I it's very important for me to pitch to the author rather than the other way around. I pitch to the author because I want them to understand what how I see their book and what, what I can do for them. And I want them to listen because if any of what I'm saying is at odds with what their own um, understanding is, if all they're interested in is... Uh, number of people who say, I can get you this much money versus another amount of money versus... And this, if that is all they care about, then I think often they are missing the point because really it is about the meeting of minds. And if, you know, like I have a really good reputation as an agent and there are a number of other agents. And, you know, I like being in a position... My favourite, favourite moment in, 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 my, from, in my job is when I read something and I know that I am the best person in the world for that novel. And when I believe that, then I am. And I try to explain this to authors. And, and it's just, it's an incredible feeling. And I always strive for it. And it's really, really brilliant. But if they don't feel that way, then obviously, you know, it's, uh, it, things can, sometimes can go wrong. But also sometimes, when you, when you know something is difficult, but you believe in it, but the industry is against you, and you try and try and try and you submit something and people can't see it. And then they end up seeing it five years later after you've submitted it to a number of uh, publishing houses and they all passed. And then it becomes a number one bestseller because one person picked it up and then, uh, but no one else could see it. You know, that process can be very frustrating and it can be frustrating for the author, but it's also frustrating for the agent when you've tried and, and and publishers don't see it. And I think it's it's the honesty and being able to say, uh, it's like, when do you, you know, sometimes relationships don't work, work out. They just don't. And that doesn't mean that, you know, sometimes they don't work out over, um, you know, because it doesn't work out at the beginning. Sometimes it doesn't work out in the long run. And, or, or you've just performed, you served your role, you did something for a particular client and then there is nothing more you can do for them because you lack imagination to take their work to the next level. And I think it's very egotistical to think I am the only person in the world because actually ultimately we're there to, to always, you know, to, to, to make sure that we do the right thing for the client and the audience, you know, so I, I don't know. There is no one fits all answer here. And I, I it's each, each situation is unique. And, and, you know, sometimes, and writers aren't always the best, even though that, you know, writers have the right to walk away and they shouldn't ever, you know, but, but it's not always, it's about trust and communication 
and understanding that agents also are human, but also they are there to work for you. Sometimes, you know, writers aren't always, that the, the, their judgment is always influenced by things in their lives, you know, by their own psychology. So to say that, you know, there is a, a kind of method or, or there is a sort of script where, you know, at this point you need to move on or there just isn't. You, you have to, it's a gut instinct and it's knowing what you want and how you feel and sometimes you won't hear because there is nothing to say or sometimes you won't hear because what you want is validation and it really isn't your agent's job always to give you validation uh it can be but it's all actually not always the best thing for you so um and you know but if you know that say you may want validation every day and if your agent can't give it to you then and another agent can well that perhaps that the best thing you can do is move on uh but it's yes this idea that there are rules and that there is a script that that just doesn't exist you know if someone's unprofessional then obviously that is a problem but you know all the um everything around the psychology of it is it's you know it's it's people interacting and a lot of it is motivational conversations about editing or planning ahead and and you just have to follow in, in, intuition and be reasonable and um you know have boundaries we've come towards the end of our time so a, a brief final question from me a theme that's come up on the podcast um is the importance of prizes particularly for journalists and novelists and how that can change the trajectory of a career you won Literary Agent of the Year in 2020 at the British Book Awards. What did that do for you, if anything? Oh, you know, they're, they're, these are industry awards and they are so much fun. It is the opportunity for all of us to uh, get together in a room, which we don't, you know, we, I guess we do quite often, but not all of us, all the publishers and agents, and to celebrate each other. So really, this is not the Oscars. I mean, you know, it is it is publishers. But, but you know, it was really fun. It's, it's fantastic. It's a really lovely recognition and it's it judged independently and my authors endorsed me and it was really fun. It came at a time in my life where I'd had a number of great successes in a short succession and I'd been nominated many times before. Uh, it's, it's, it was lovely. It's, it's an industry recognition and, um, and it's, it's, I think it's important, uh, you know, and, and, but it, it also, it is a team effort. And, and I think the unfair part of it is that individual agents are, 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 are sometimes rewarded for the work of many people in the background. So, um, I love the I love the awards. I mean, they are they happen every year, and you know it's just agents and publishers and editors and marketeers and other people are are nominated and win, and it's an opportunity to just have fun and celebrate each other. But the, the importance of awards, I think they're important for writers, and particularly in you know they're important. They are a lottery. They are. It's like awards. You just have to, you have to approach them with a degree of kind of emotional distance really great well look carolina thank you for being a fantastic guest on the podcast and for answering all our all our questions in such a thoughtful manner and wishing you all the best with um your projects and your your writers going forward thank you very much that was the always take notes interview with carolina sutton she's on twitter at carolina sutton and the website for creative artists agency is CAA 
www.simonwatt.com. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was your takeaway from the interview with Carolina? I thought it was a really interesting conversation. I mean, we've we've made a bit of a push this year to book some more agents and editors because we found that they're uh, interviews that we find really interesting and also that, that our listeners uh, find fascinating. And it's just interesting to kind of lift the lid on on how that works from the the kind of prosaic things of, of how her how her day is divided and and stuff like that to just seeing you know the other side of of the literary marketplace. I find them very informative interviews, and particularly with her client roster and these these hugely distinguished names that she's been working with I found it was um yeah a kind of fascinating insight what about you Rachel yes agree I think it's excellent to have another agent on the show and one of Carolina's stature she was passionate about the purpose and value of literature and I felt her observations about British publishing from the perspective of an outsider were interesting and I was also interested by the fact that she doesn't really give editorial notes to her um, superstar writers. Yeah, how you how you walk that line um, is an interesting subject and one we've come up with, I suppose, before on the show as to whether people get too grand to edit or to give stuff like that to. Um, anyway, uh, Rachel, what have you been up to? I have been hooked on The Last of Us, like millions of other people around the world. So I uh, wrote a newsletter intro, which will have gone out by the time this episode is released. Um, And we should try and get Craig Mazin on the show because he also hosts a great podcast about the craft of screenwriting. So I feel like, you know, the worlds could collide there. And other than that, I have been deep in wedding planning now that we're into 2023. It's all sort of kicking off in earnest. Um, So that's quite fun, but also quite busy. How about you? Uh, I'm still in the mountains. I've been, I've been had kind of tricky week or so, a couple of weeks, and I've been dealing with a, an injury issue um, on my ankle. But I've taken a bit of time off, and I think, touch wood, that that, that would have paid off. I um, I took the waters in a sort of Victorian sense by going to this like spa over the weekend and exposed myself to heat and cold and jacuzzis and and that sort of things. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser and our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter at Take Notes Always. We're on Instagram at Always Take Notes. If you'd like to support our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.